This is Dr. Michael Bricky with Ageless Lifestyles, cutting-edge thinking for being youthful at every age. On each program, I interview experts on what it takes to live longer, healthier, and happier. Today's show, Cosmetic Surgery, the State of the Art. Our guest is cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Barry Leica. He is a leading authority on cosmetic surgery, skin cancer surgery, reconstructive surgery, and laser surgery. His upcoming book, which should be available in August 2011, is Skin Works. Dr. Leica, welcome. Thank you very much for having me today, Dr. Bricky. I'm very glad to be here. I read the previous book, Restoring Youth, and you said, told me a few minutes ago that Skin Works is the latest version of that that should be out in a few weeks. And one of the things that struck me was uh, we, we tend to think that people who go for cosmetic surgery are unhappy with their appearance. And you say that most people, most of your clients and cosmetic surgery clients are pretty pleased with their appearance and they just want to do some tweaks. Yes, it does seem to be a bit of a discrepancy there. You know, there are two different groups of patients. There are those patients that are just terribly dismayed with the way that they look. The more common finding, though, is most people are just a little bit unhappy with the way they look, and they just want to tweak things. I always find people who do best with cosmetic surgery are those that have realistic expectations, and those that are already satisfied with things, they already have a, a, a happiness about themselves seems to be true about life in general, that if people are happy with things, if they want to tweak things, they do that much better. Kind of a continuous quality improvement. Exactly. And I think as we get older, there's always something in the needs for continuous quality improvement that we have to do. Unfortunately, nature has throws some curveballs at us. And as we get older, there's always something that needs to be replaced, something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be done. Just like the house, huh? Exactly. You know, just like a house. A house starts to fall down after a while. It starts to get some things going wrong with them. It's the same thing with the body. You know, it's, it's amazing how as we get older, everything starts to droop. It's amazing how the skin starts to look different. Our skin that was once youthful and healthy all of a sudden starts looking like an old catcher's mitt, especially if we've had too much sun along the way. Our eyelids start to droop. Our face starts to droop. We start to have areas that just don't look good on our bodies. People get a lower abdominal spread. They get the middle age spread, and the spread affects both the abdomen and the sides. So there's lots of things that need to be touched up and a lot of things that need to be made to look better. And if realtors talk about location, 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 particularly when it comes to face and arms, the dermatologists are talking about sun, sun, sun. Well, exactly. And sun is one of the major culprits. There's two things that I always find are, are our main culprits as we get older. One is genetics. It's very, very hard to fight genetics. But fortunately, we have more and more tools for doing so. You know, if your parents had gray hair at an early age, it's likely you're going to have gray hair at an early age. If you tend to put weight on certain areas, that's going to happen also because of the genetics. So genetics sometimes can be cruel in that way. I always advise my patients to choose their parents wisely, which of course is something that you cannot do, but at least it injects a little humor into the situation. Secondly is sun, sun, sun. Sun is one of those damaging factors. It does a couple of things to the body. One of the things it does is it breaks down elastic fibers. 
And those elastic fibers are so essential for our skin so that as we get older, if those elastic fibers aren't there, our skin droops more. It also breaks down collagen. In fact, collagen literally unravels as we get older due to the effects of the sunlight. So again, that has to be taken into account. Thirdly, the top layers of the skin start to change. The cells themselves start to change. So when the top layers start to change and the cells therein start to change, people can develop even skin cancers. They can develop precancers. But they also develop brown spots, uh, known as liver spots or lentigos. They start to develop dilated blood vessels, known as telangiectasias. And all these start to be part of the skin scenario as we get older. And that's why sun, sun, sun is a mantra that a lot of dermatologists say. But it's something that we hope people pay attention to so that they can avoid some of these problems as they get older. A lot of the newest therapies involve laser treatments and uh, light treatments to grow new collagen. Yes, that's true. Now, in the early phases, lasers can certainly help a great deal. They can help, first of all, to remove some of the top layers of the skin where there is sun damage, and it does it very precisely, such as taking off a page of paper from a book at a time. second way that it does it is actually to literally tighten the collagen and stimulate new collagen formation. If new collagen forms, then it stays for a lot longer, and we find that lasers help a lot with that. Light treatments do a similar thing. There's some light treatments that we put a special chemical on the skin called ALA, or alpha-levulinic acid, that gets activated by a, a lamp. Uh, it could even be a sun lamp, for that matter, or it can be activated by a special light source or a laser, and that will stimulate new collagen to form and make the skin that much better. So these are some of the newer means of tightening skin, producing new collagen, and making things look better. But when there's a lot of decay, we have to go deeper than that. And that's where we use filling substances, such as collagen, or some of the newer filling substances, such as the hyaluronic acid-based substances, or HA, that are literally injected underneath the skin to help with some of the atrophy that's occurring. And one of the fillers you talked about is actually plexiglass. Are there any plasticizers in that, or is it literally plexiglass? Well, that's one of the ones that was used a few years ago, and we found that that was a bit uh, detrimental to people. We have better fillers than that. There are some hydroxyapatite-containing fillers, known as radius, that is actually like a very soft form of bone that goes underneath the skin. Because as we get older, our bones literally atrophy in our face. So if you put something like that in and build up the bony structure, a person actually can get a lot more relief from the lipoatrophy that occurs as we get older. Another one is something called Sculptra, which is a, a literally like ground up little sutures that are used. And these are literally that go underneath the skin and stimulate the body's own collagen to fill in these defects. Sculpture is a very long-acting substance, as is the radius substance. They can last up to three years in the skin. And for that period of time, no further treatment needs to be done, which is really amazing compared to what we used to do. When collagen was around, for example, it was only a few months, one to two months. With the hyaluronic fillers, it can be up to six months, maybe even a year. But then we can get up to two or three years with some of the longer-acting substances, which is amazing. When they do the traditional facelift, do they try to add anything to the the bone loss that you're talking about? Yeah, that's, a, that's a real good question, uh, Mike, because 
What's happened over the years is we realized that a traditional facelift was not all that it should be. It only dealt with one part of the problem. The, the one problem that it was dealing with was the drooping, but it didn't deal with any of the atrophy that was going on. It didn't deal with any of the other things that were going wrong. It didn't deal with beautifying the skin. So what's replaced the traditional facelift is what I call combination procedures. If a person needs a little bit of lifting, well, a bit of lifting is done. So the traditional facelift, which used to be a very big procedure, has been replaced with a mini facelift. And in addition to that, it's been combined with many of the filling substances. It's been combined with many of the laser treatments we use so that a person gets a full meal deal and they get a full re rehabilitation of the skin. They get a better result that way than just having one set of procedures done. And it's best to think of the skin as having multiple things going wrong. So it's it's probably wrong to think of it as only one thing that will fix the whole kit and caboodle. You have to think that many things have to fix the multiple factors that are going wrong. So a modern cosmetic doctor is a doctor that's one that thinks of all the aspects and tries to fix all those aspects. Because we find that even if, you, for example, there was just a study published that showed that if you fixed some of the top layers of the skin, the brownness and the induration, and did fillers at the same time, the results were much longer lasting than just doing fillers by themselves. And the same probably is true of doing facelifts. If you fix the other components of it without fixing the top layer of the skin being a problem, there's really literally nothing to hang all these things on. It's like a coat hanger for your coat. If you don't have a coat hanger for it, the coat loses its form and function fairly readily. So you have to fix the superficial layers too. The Russian thread facelift, I, I gather from what you just said that that might be a piece. Could you tell us how that works in more detail? Let me tell you a little bit about that because that, that was rather a phenomenal little development that has occurred and we still use some of that sometimes. We realized that a facelift was pretty traumatic, so the whole idea was that if you used a little thread underneath the skin with little barbs on it, you could literally lift the face back to where it used to be without going through the trauma of a facelift. And and that was the whole idea between the uh, the Russian thread, or it's also called the aptosuture. Now, there still are some variations of the aptosuture out there, and they literally have little cups that go underneath the skin and help lift the skin back to where it was. So these are a very minimally invasive procedure, and it seems to help a lot of people. Now, if a person really is hanging down and they've lost all their elasticity, well, then unfortunately, that won't be enough for them. But we're talking in people in their ages, maybe 30 to 50, that are just developing a little bit of the droop, that are developing a little bit of the problems, and these are things that help to replace them and help to bring back the skin to where it was. Over my lifetime, I've done hundreds of these threads, and people have had some very, very good results. They seem to last in the neighborhood of five to seven years, and then they have to be replaced at that time. But five to seven years for any procedure is pretty phenomenal, especially since the facelift itself will only last five to seven years. After that five to seven years, what do you do? Well, it's interesting. These are little threads underneath the skin, so you can actually find the little thread and actually simply remove it. And then you can insert another one just alongside the same track that it was in. 
So it's not a very difficult thing to do, and people have been very, very pleased with that. We've had some phenomenal good results with that. As I say, the happiest things are my patients that have had these done. I couldn't figure out if the threads are pulling up the skin, what do you do with the bulge of skin at the top? That's an interesting one because, you know, skin is an amazing elastic material. It grows and it expands and it also shrinks when people have, it also shrinks down again when people don't need that extra skin. So I found that, for example, when we do a liposuction procedure and take off a lot of fat off the belly, that a lot of the skin will shrink down afterwards. I've also found that true with the Russian thread as well, that when you actually bunch up the skin for a period of time, it actually is released a little bit, and the skin actually molds to the container that it's in. So it actually grows, it shrinks. It's an amazing dynamic organ. It's not just a static thing that most people think it is. It keeps on changing, it keeps on growing, it keeps on expanding. Otherwise, you know, as we gained weight, we'd be in trouble because our skin would literally rip if we if we gained too much weight. So with this, the skin expands and contracts to meet the container that it's in. And it does it within a fair degree of, of certainty. Since you're talking about skin expanding, I've got one of those silly questions. When you do breast implants, do you need extra skin for that or does the skin just stretch? That, that's a wonderful question, and, and it really uh, takes a lot of skill in putting a, a breast implant in properly. If you put in a breast implant that is too large for a person, I mean really, really too large, then no, the skin can't grow to that extent. But if you put in the right size breast implant, it'll actually grow to cover it, so that's not a major problem. There are also some implants, such as a saline implant, that actually can be put in, and then it can be expanded over the period of time so that it's not the full size to begin with, but it's expanded a little bit. And then a month later, it's expanded a little bit more. And then a month later, it's expanded a little bit more so that the body can actually adjust easier if you do this gradual expansion rather than a huge expansion all at one time. Back on the facelifts, your state-of-the-art now, what do you typically do for, say, a 60-year-old person who wants a facelift? Well, so first we, the first thing we always do, Michael, is we talk to them very, very carefully about what their goals are, what really bothers them, what's number one that they'd like to achieve. Is it the looseness of the skin? Is it the falling of the skin? Is it the neck area? Because really a facelift does more for lifting the neck than it does really for lifting the face. So we first have to be on the same page with the patient and we have to discuss with them what it is that really bothers them. It's amazing how many times I get a person in and they've come in because they wanted a facelift and it's actually their eyes that bother them. They hate the droopiness of their upper eyelid or their droopiness of their lower eyelid, and they really find that it's it's not the face that's really bothering them, it's these other things that are doing that. So first of all, we have to be on the same page. Now let's suppose that it is the drooping that's really bothering them. Well, then we go through a whole procedure called an informed consent procedure, where we basically talk to them of all the risks all the benefits and all the alternatives of the procedure. We talk to them about the downtime they're going to achieve. 
We talk to them about risks such as nerve damage or infection that can occur with a facelift. We talk to them about the other things that are possible alternatives to that, such as fillers or even the Russian facelift, the Russian thread that we had previously talked about. So we talk about the other aspects so that a person can make a proper informed consent. And any doctor worth their salt in the year 2011 will certainly talk about the other procedures that might be beneficial as well because it's in the best interest to be fully warned, to be fully knowledgeable of everything. It would be wonderful in the ideal world if complications did not happen and that we never had a problem that ever occurred after surgery. Unfortunately, that's a fool's paradise, Michael. We don't get surgery done without risk occurring. Unfortunately, that cannot occur. So a person has to be aware of these risks and the possible alternatives for them. What are the biggest mistakes that you see in what people seek and get with facelifts? You know, I think the biggest mistakes I see with people is that they don't go about looking at this as a procedure that has any risks associated with it all. I think people, when they come in, have to come in with their eyes wide open. And I think they have to also be very careful about choosing the doctor that's perfect for them. I think they have to be very careful about knowing uh, about the doctor and their credentials because, unfortunately, one cosmetic doctor is not just as good as another. Each doctor has their own specialties. Each doctor has their own uh, has their own abilities. Each doctor has their own skills. So a person should be well aware of whether a person is, does a lot of facelifts or if they only do a few. They should also be aware if this is really a specialty area that the person does. Because, uh, unfortunately, it, it's true of everything. If you only do one or two a, in a year, you're not going to be as facile or as good as a person who does a couple hundred in a year. It just doesn't make sense that way. So I, I think another thing patients are constantly doing is they're looking for the cheapest alternative for their surgery, which is unfortunately not the best way to to approach the surgery and should not be the best way for them to think about the surgery. The reason why is simple. You know, Michael, if I could use an example, suppose I could sell you a Mercedes-Benz for a dollar. What would your reaction be? Uh, It's a scam. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what the average person would do. There's something wrong with this. I mean, a Mercedes-Benz can't be a dollar. It just can't be. It must not have an engine, or it must be hot, or there must be something wrong with it. And the same goes true with cosmetic surgery. If it's really cheap, the person really should be thinking, well, there's got to be something wrong with this, because this is a person that's trained for 20 years, has has ultimate skills. How can he offer this at, at cut neck prices how can he cut it do it at such such prices that are unbelievable and that's what i constantly see you know ads on the newspaper of of a facelift for $2999 and you know an average facelift takes 2 to 6 hours to do you can't get it done for that price i mean it it just is unrealistic to even think that this is a is a possibility so prices have to be commensurate with the skill that's there Remember, this is a person's body. You shouldn't be doing things cheap with it. Doing things cheap are not necessarily the best way to go. Well, even cost aside, I think choosing a cosmetic surgeon is one of the more difficult doctors to choose. To me, it would seem that 
you know, I, I see practices that do everything. I mean, they're full-time cosmetic surgeons, but they'll do breast augmentation and tummy tucks and face and, and laser treatments and everything. And I, I would think that the more you specialize in, uh, say, just above the neck, probably the better you would get at it. I, I concur with that, uh, Michael, because again, it's the skill of the doctor. Now, certainly a doctor can have multiple skills, and, and these are certainly transferable across some of the uh, across some of the areas. Again, it's not realistic to think a person will be perfect at all these areas. And some people are great at doing eyes, and that's all they concentrate on. Some doctors are great at doing implants, and that's all they concentrate on. Some doctors uh, just do breast lifts, and they're, that's what they're good at. So again, the the higher degree of skill, I think, comes with the subspecialization, and the person really should seek that out. A person should look for that, because I think the subspecialization really makes all the difference in all this. I think a person has to be aware if there's subspecialization or if they're a jack-of-all-trades. Many patients I know are afraid to ask doctors questions, and I think that's a big detriment. I think the question is that no doctor should be threatened or, or feel inferior just because a person's asking questions. I welcome questions in my practice. I love it when people ask questions because that helps me to give a, a better answer. It really helps me to do my job properly. And I think questions are, are really the cornerstone of everything we do. Questions are really, really what make the field what it is. And I think a doctor really should be aware of, of answers to questions and really shouldn't be threatened by any of them. It's a person's right to know the answers. It, it's something that's very important for that. My first inclination would be to look for board certification. Your suggestion was the Ethical Cosmetic Surgery Association. And we, I put together a little uh, society a few years ago called the Ethical Cosmetic Surgery Association, which basically is across boards. You know, there are plastic surgeons that do cosmetic work. There are dermatologists that do cosmetic work. There are family doctors that do cosmetic work. There are facial plastic surgeons that do cosmetic work. There are a whole number of different specialties that engage in this. Board certification doesn't necessarily mean a person has all the skills that a person needs. All it means is that they have a board examine that, and that doesn't necessarily mean they have done 20 hours or 100 hours of facelift procedures. It doesn't mean they've done so many hours of doing liposuction. In fact, it would probably shock the, the public to know that most cosmetic procedures are learned after residency rather than during residency. Most of the time in residency, a person is taught the broad basis of the skills, but they're not taught the rudiments of the of the sub-skills that are there. For example, when I went through my residency, I went through the University of Minnesota, a very, very good school in dermatology. I learned how to do skin cancer surgery. I saw some of the first cases of liposuction back then, but they were done so much differently than they are now that I had to learn liposuction myself in the 1990s and the new techniques. And I went to every course that I could from them from 1991 to 1994. And I learned a lot about liposuction from some of the greats like Dr. Jeffrey Klein, Dr. Patrick Lillis, Dr. Bill Hankey, Dr. William Coleman III. And these were true pioneers in the area, and they really were teaching a way to do it under local anesthesia, which was never, ever heard of before. 
Well, I, for three years, I went and took every course I could, and I learned how to do it, but I kept refining my techniques, and I kept learning new things. In the year 2003, we learned about powered instruments that made it an easier procedure for the patient with less trauma. In about 2007, lasers became available that helped to make the uh, procedures less traumatic. So all these things evolved over time, and I'm really pleased to be alive in the year 2011 because I've learned from all these teachings that have gone on since 1986. But all these fields are constantly evolving. All these ways are constantly changing. The ways that are, are being offered now probably will be different in five to ten years. And so a, a patient has to be aware that doctors have to keep up on these things. They also have to be very knowledgeable, but at the same time, a lot of the things they learn in residency are just the basics for their skills later on. They certainly don't take them into all the areas where where they are today. Are there many differences in cosmetic surgery in the United States versus Canada? There, basically, all the schools are very, very similar in that there's a very, very high standard. But, you know, the individual schools vary, and the individual skills vary in the schools that people go to. Um, I took my medical degree in Canada. I took my, I did a couple of years of internship in Canada, and then I went to the States where I did my fellowship. So there is differences even amongst the schools themselves. There are schools that are really good in certain things and really good in certain areas, and other schools which are not so good in certain areas. So it's hard for the average consumer to realize that. It's also hard for them to realize all the things that a doctor needs to know in order to be a good doctor. We're talking with Dr. Barry Lyka, that's spelled L-Y-C-K-A. He is the author of some of the earliest books for cosmetic surgeons, teaching them how to do cosmetic surgery, and his upcoming book, Skin Works, should be available in August 2011. And you have a practice in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, which is uh, Edmonton, for those who aren't up in their geography, is about 300 miles north of the Montana border. That's very good, Michael. I didn't know you'd know that. We're known for a couple of things up here. And if you have any gasoline or oil in your car, you should know about Alberta because there's more oil in Alberta than Saudi Arabia. So we're probably your closest neighbor these days. You know, we certainly do export a lot of it down to the southern states. So mm-hmm. very important to realize that this is a good relationship between us. One of the interesting things that I read that you do is one of your joys is doing tattoo removal with prostitutes and gang members. Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, Michael, there's many people in our society that unfortunately do not get to the higher levels of society. And some of the things that keep them really attached to those things are something stupid like a tattoo. Many tattoos actually are put on by gang members. Many tattoos are put on by pimps on their prostitutes, and they keep people really enslaved in those in bondage, in human bondage mm-hmm. that way. We started a program a number of years ago where we started to remove tattoos for free from prostitutes in the hope that they would therefore be freed from this, this branding that went on and then assume full lives that are now... Uh, 
are really prominent members of society, people that have really changed their whole life in regards to that. As far as gang members, we also have some wonderful people that are really participating members of society and have really freed themselves from, from the bondage that went on just simply because their tattoos were there. And I really find that that's really a great thing to do, and it's part of our goal to give back to society. I think giving back is a very, very important thing that is really underestimated as far as its skills and abilities in helping society grow. You know, we should be known not only what we do during our daytime hours, but also what we do in our after hours. And I I really find this one of the greatest things that we can do for people is to bring them back into functioning members of society and make them participate at a greater level. And some of the other things the Foundation for Canadian Skin Care does, and and that's a non-profit. Let me talk a little bit about that. Back in about 2003, I started a society called the Canadian Skin Cancer Foundation. Again, if you work in the dermatology or plastic surgery areas, one thing you do know is that there are far too many skin cancers going on. And we are seeing so many skin cancers, it really is scary. The numbers keep multiplying every year. And certainly the biggest cause of skin cancer is the sunlight that we consume. Most of us consume sunlight during the daytime hours, during the summer months. But you know, those hours are expanded throughout the year now as people take on winter vacations. They go to tanning parlors. They go on cruises during the winter months, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So people have to be aware that they have to protect their skin 24-7, 365 days a year. So we started a Canadian Skin Cancer Foundation that helps to educate people about skin cancer, also helps to get people to know about it. And This year in the Edmonton area, we educated over 120 classrooms of of children through our volunteer force of, of people, and we've really been fundamental in getting that message out. We're so thrilled that we can not only treat skin cancers, but we can also prevent them. And I'd love to see, the goal I'd love to see by the time I die is a world without skin cancer. I would love to see the fact that a a skin cancer did not exist anymore. Right now it's very premature for that, but we're already, already reaping some of the benefits as people are starting to wear their sunscreens, wear their hats, protect themselves during the brightest times of the day because we find that very beneficial. And every year we get this message out over and over and over again. And and this year we, we actually got out a new device, which is an interesting device. You know how we are treating tattoos? Well, I thought, what if we put a phony tattoo on people in the shape of a scar? And we got the message out that one of the worst things that happens with skin cancer is people get scars and get cut up with that. So every year on melanoma, on one day, with what we're going to call Melanoma Monday, we're going to get people to wear a scar in support of this. Hopefully we can get the message out even more about this. We want to get the message out about skin cancer greatly every year and hopefully stop this plague that's affecting the earth right now. And I noticed that a lot more cosmetics are including sunscreen in the cosmetic. They are, and unfortunately, they're not of a very good level yet. You'll find that they only have an SPF of 6, maybe 8, or maybe 15. So we're really recommending a person use a sunscreen in addition to that, something with a number 30 or greater, because we find that a 15 just isn't enough to protect most people for the length of time they want to stay outdoors. 
So we really feel that it's very important that people use a stronger sunscreen than just as what is found in, in cosmetics. Yes, it's a start to put in cosmetics, great, but let's get a little bit better out there as well. You know, when I started talking about sunscreen protection in the early 1990s, the strongest sunscreens most companies were putting out were a 15. Now we're in 30 pluses and 50 pluses. And I, I think it's very important to realize that the, the the bigger numbers are giving us a little bit more protection. They're not exponentially better, but they give us a little bit more. And I think a little bit more is better than a little bit less in this day and age. And another thing the foundation does is reconstructive surgery for victims of spousal abuse. Yeah, that's another program that I started a long time ago. And we started working on victims of spousal abuse as a means also to help them get back into society and overcome some of these scars that they had. And we've done some phenomenal work to help to restore the skin and help people get back to a full living situation as a result of that. And again, this is a, a service that I do through my office at no cost uh, to the patient because, again, I want them to do better. It's, again, a part of my way of giving back. As I say, I've been very successful. I've been very, very happy in my work. And I certainly like to give back to those, to society, and that's my little ways of doing it. If we can make a better world, why, why not? That, that's certainly what we try to do. And the Skin Works is about a 150-page book that covers just about everything you need to know about skin care and cosmetic surgery. And the website, Barrylyka, that's B-A-R-R-Y-L-Y-C-K-A-M-D.com, has a lot of information. That's the best place for people to get in touch with me. There's also an email on that site where they can write to our office, and I can certainly help them to the best of my abilities. I've also put a, a little uh, set of videos together on people, how they can choose their cosmetic doctor. They can get that at cn.wellandwiseonline.com, cn.wellandwiseonline.com. So we hope people will check out those videos and be able to choose a cosmetic doctor that's perfect for them. Does your website, Barry Leica MD, have links to that? or It doesn't currently, but they will be set up very soon. One of the myths, and I think we get this from watching the Extreme Makeover TV programs, is that the fast track to losing weight is to get liposuction, and you say absolutely not. It would be wonderful if we had a procedure that would get people to lose 50 to 100 pounds all in a in a heartbeat, so to speak. But unfortunately, that really doesn't exist. When you think of it, people gain weight for a reason. They, they, You know, in our society, Michael, people eat for all the wrong reasons. They eat because they're mad. They eat because they're going to a party. They eat because they're happy. They eat because they're depressed. They, eat for, they substitute food for everything else in their life. And so food becomes one of the factors that that's a major problem. We also realize that now that just taking diet foods doesn't necessarily help because even foods that have artificial sweeteners in them make a person gain weight just by adding those into the diet. Now, that seems counterintuitive because there really is no calories in them, but when you think of what really is happening when a person takes in a diet drink that has a sweetener in it, that's a thousand times or ten thousand times sweeter than sugar. What happens is when that hits the tongue, the body starts secreting chemicals and enzymes and saying, "Oh wow, 
there's a lot of food coming down the pipes here. we got to gear up for this harvest that's coming in. So all of a sudden, the whole body is rigged and set up to things, and your body then starts putting away every other calorie that comes into the mouth. It gears it up and puts it right away. So there's a huge, huge problem with the way that we we do things in our society. So I've always found that the problem with, with just concentrating on surgery is it's not going to work because a person has to learn to re-eat. They have to learn how to think of food properly. They have to think of how they're going to do things properly. They they have to relearn. And if we're just concentrating on a surgical procedure that's magically going to get it to go away, I think we're all going to lose. I think the most important thing is to realize that that our body is geared to store things for periods of feast and famine. That's why eating something, we tend to put it away. Our body tends to put it in fat deposits. Now, the reason for that is because when we used to be cavemen thousands of years ago, we never knew when our next water buffalo would come along. We never knew when our next meal would come along. So our body had to really, really be geared towards putting things away. And it put it away in certain areas. The problem is, and it's a good thing, we don't go through periods of feast and famine anymore. But our body is still geared to putting everything away. So if you take a little, if if you take just an extra skim milk latte a day, your body's going to turn it into fat. And it doesn't take many calories every day to start being in a in a positive balance. You you have a little bit of food that you put away, a little bit of stuff you put away, and your body puts away magically all the time. Now, if you're not burning that off, if you're not doing physical exercise, if you're not doing work that's putting it away, you're going to keep on gaining. Your body is geared towards that. So that's where we get into our problems, I think, and people have to realize there has to be a balance between eating and exercise and everything else that goes on in the body. Otherwise, we're going to be in a lose-lose situation rather than a win-win situation. And I was fascinated when you wrote about acne. You said it's not chocolate and, and some of the foods we normally think of, but high glycemic foods and refined carbohydrates, the same thing that causes uh, most of our weight gain and uh, health problems. Absolutely, and and it, it's interesting because again, what happens when we eat the uh, the high glycemic foods? Our body sim- stimulates hormones, stimulates certain things that go on in our body, which causes the acne to come out. Another thing that's been implicated pretty readily in the last couple of years is dairy products are a big form of acne, and dairy itself stimulates acne in a lot of patients. So people have to be well aware of the of the dairy connection and. We've actually cured people from acne just getting them off dairy products, hmm. which which is something that we wouldn't have thought to be common 10, 15 years ago. Is it just the fat in milk? If somebody was using skim milk and skim milk cheeses, is that still going to... It's actually the dairy products themselves. It's not just the fat in there. It's the whole dairy in that. And it triggers an enzymatic pathway in the body which causes people to produce acne. It causes inflammation in the skin, and it causes the acne pustules to come out. So, And it's the same thing with the high glycemic diet. It triggers the same pathways. 
So again, that's why people should be on a good, healthy, balanced diet, eating five to seven helpings of fruit and vegetables every day and staying uh, that way because I think people do better that way. Back on liposuction, you said the tumescent is currently the safest and most effective. How is that different from other liposuction procedures? Well, let's go through that a little bit, and I'll, I'll go through again the evolution of the procedure as I see it. You know, when I first saw my first case of liposuction back in 1986, it was done under general anesthesia. The person bled a lot because of the general anesthesia because the blood vessels under general anesthesia tend to dilate, and so a person tends to bleed a lot. So then a person required a lot of transfusions to overcome that. When a person bleeds a lot, there are a lot of clots that are formed, um, and all those things that go along with that are somewhat dangerous. Clots can travel. They can travel to the heart, or they can travel to the lung. If they travel to the heart, they could cause a heart attack. If they travel to the lung, they could cause a pulmonary thromboembolus which are pretty dangerous things, and people actually die from these things. In fact, almost every time when I've seen a major complication from liposuction and followed in the, in the media and found that there was a death, it, it has been because they've been under general anesthesia combined with the liposuction. So back in about 1986, one of my colleagues, Dr. Jeffrey Klein from San Capistrano, California, started experimenting, and he found out a way to do liposuction totally under local anesthesia, and he called this tumescent anesthesia. So he found a way to put very, very large amounts of very dilute anesthetic directly into the fatty compartment. In that solution were a couple of other things. There was bicarbonate to neutralize the pH of the solution so it didn't burn too much when it went in, and there was some epinephrine in it to constrict the blood vessels. Plus, there was a large amount of fluid in it. Now, fluid, when it's put in in this technique, just gets absorbed into the body, which is wonderful, so we don't even have to start an IV and give any person any other IV fluids for this. So with this technique, we're able to do fairly large areas of fatty areas, and at the same time, the average amount of blood loss is about 10 cc's in a procedure which is a very, very small amount of blood. In fact, that's less than the amount a woman loses during her menstruation. So it really is a very, very small amount, so the risks are drastically minimized. Also, a person's awake for a procedure, so there's very little way in the risks of perforating anything or the risks of, of any major trauma being done to the body because this is a gentler, kinder way of doing liposuction. So I think what this did was it freed up the procedure so it can be done, not necessarily in a hospital, but can be done in, in an office that's upgraded. I do it in a non-hospital surgical facility, a nicer facility than a hospital. There isn't the rigors or the, or the problems associated with that, yet there's the same degree of safety, the same degree of sterility, same degree of everything that way so a person can get a great procedure done. So the risks are much, much less this way. There's less risks of, of the life-threatening procedures. There's much less in the risks of the dangers that went on with the previous procedures. Now, there are still some doctors that do liposuction under general anesthesia. I find that much, much riskier. Some of the other doctors have moved on to doing sedation under what's called neurolep anesthesia, where they use intravenous things like... Uh, Librium or intravenous valium, so a person doesn't have to be totally asleep, 
yet at the same time they're in a twilight zone. So the other name of this is twilight anesthesia. I find tumescent anesthesia done totally under local. You don't even have to use those techniques. So it's even safer than that. Anytime you're using anything to abtund a person, there's risks such as a person stopping breathing. And if they stop breathing, their heart can stop. So we like to stay away from that as much as possible. What is the, quote, smart lipo? Smart lipo basically is a procedure, again, done totally under tumescent anesthesia, but it uses a laser. First, we freeze the person with the tumescent anesthesia. Then we use a laser underneath the skin to literally pop the fat cells and literally to tighten the skin. Smart lipo is one of the lasers that's out there right now for this. It's a 1064 neodymium YAG that does a very, very good job in popping the fat cells so that there's less trauma to the patient. You literally don't have to physically have to remove them, but you. the laser does the initial preparation so that when you put a cannulin in after, the fat cells come out very easily. The fat comes out very easily with very less trauma to the patient. So what this means is a person gets back to the races quicker there's much less in the way of trauma that way, and so a person can get... I usually will do a, free, a procedure on a Thursday or Friday, and they'll be back at work by Monday or Tuesday. Years ago, this was thought to be sacrilegious. How can you do that? A major procedure, and a person is back to work in just a few days. Well, that's the beauty of how science has progressed. Science has gotten better that way. There's less trauma to the patient, so a person can get back to the races quickly. We read about how abdominal fat is uh, one of the worst kinds of fat in terms of cardiovascular risk. Does removing abdominal fat with liposuction reduce your risk of heart attack other than you know, being a few a, pounds lighter? That's a wonderful question, Michael, and I don't know if I can totally answer this because there's two types of abdominal fat. There's abdominal fat that's directly in the abdominal cavity surrounding the organs, the liver, the lungs, the, the intestines. And then there's fat that's between the skin and the muscle. Now, when we're doing liposuction, we're only getting at the fat between the skin and the muscle because anything inside the abdominal cavity would be far too risky for perforation or anything like that. So we're only dealing with part of the problem. But let me tell you about something that I've seen a number of times. Occasionally, I'll do liposuction on a person that's diabetic, a person that's on insulin, or on, on medications to help to control their maturity onset diabetes. Now, one thing I've found in a lot of patients that get liposuction done is their insulin requirements drastically decrease or their medication requirements drastically decrease. We've had the fact that we've had some people that have turned from diabetics back into a non-diabetic state by the very fact that we've done liposuction on them. So that in itself, I think, speaks wonders because people who do have diabetes, of course, have bigger risks, have bigger problems associated with living, and they have certainly higher risks of heart attacks, they have higher risks of going blind, they have higher risks of kidney failure and kidney damage. So in those patients, we've been able to help. Now, I wouldn't say this is a cure for diabetes, don't get me wrong, but I've been amazed how some people have really done really, really well with that, and we've been able to help them overcome a major debilitating disease. But with the cardiac, there's really no good information? Or? We don't know because we're only dealing with part of the problem, Michael. Mm -hmm. We're only dealing with the fat that's in one part of the container. We can't get at the other part. 
So at this point in time, I can't say yay or nay to that because I just don't know. There were two procedures that fascinated me, actually almost sounded too good to be true. One is mesotherapy. Can you tell us about that? Let's talk a little bit about mesotherapy and and its and its other name for it is something called lipodissolve therapy. A friend of mine, Dr. Tony Lockwood, who's a plastic surgeon in Winnipeg, Canada, actually introduced me to lipodissolve and, and mesotherapy in the year 2003. He called me and said, Barry, I've got something that's fascinating that I think you need to learn about because there are people that are actually doing really, really well with this treatment and their fat is literally going away without surgery. And you know, when I heard this, I literally laughed my way off the chair, just like you probably did, saying, wow, how can that be? So I went and I learned from him, and he taught me about this new technique that literally can remove fat without any surgery being done. And that fat really has been interesting because when we inject certain chemicals into the fat, the body breaks down the fat and the body absolves it, and it, it tends to go away. The two chemicals we tend to administer are something called phosphatidylcholine and something called sodium deoxycholate. Now, I don't expect the listeners to ever remember that, but these are two of the commonly used chemicals for that. Now, some people will use sodium deoxycholate itself, and other people will use a combination of the two to do the results. And we certainly do see some very, very good results on small areas of fat, on areas where the fat is not that firm and not that hard. One is a machine called UltraShape, and UltraShape is a brand new technology that uses ultrasound waves to literally cavitate the fat and go into the fatty compartment and help the fat to dissolve as well. So this is like a lipodissolve treatment, but it's using a machine that will do this. The beautiful thing about the the ultra shape is there's really no trauma, there's no downtime, there's no swelling, there's no bruising, there's no pain, whereas lipodissolve does cause some bruising, swelling, and pain. The other thing with ultra shape, it usually takes one to two treatments, whereas with the the other treatment of lipodissolve, it usually takes about four treatments to get where you want to go. So that's one of the two machines. Another machine is a machine that's uh, put out by a company called uh, Zeltique. It's available in Canada and the United States. The UltraShape is not available in the United States yet, but will be going through an approval process over the next six months to a year. So cool sculpting is something that's available from the company called Zeltique, and what it uses is literally cold to help make the fat dissipate. It literally sucks the fat into a little your your abdomen to a little machine that draws the heat out of the fat. Now we know that a long time ago that cold can actually cause fat to dissipate, and this has been one of the means that people get cold injury. Well, this is now being done in such a way that the skin is protected and other things are protected, and people can actually lose inches within a single treatment. So Zeltique is another one that's out there right now. So as I speak, there are newer, better means of coming out all the time. There are newer, more interesting techniques to help. We're evaluating these two machines to see which one is the better of the two machines. And if they do pan out to be as as we think they are, we'll be bringing them into our practice in the fall. Amazing. So it's very interesting what keeps happening in medicine. We keep developing better things. We keep developing newer things. We keep developing 
infrastructure, wonderful things. As I say, I'm so glad to be practicing in the year 2011 because these new things are continuously coming on. They're bigger, they're better, they're they're newer, and and they help the patient get through things with less trauma, with less downtime, and we've really been thrilled with all of them. You're like a kid in a toy store. <laughs> you know, and uh, what I find is that my patients keep making me like a kid in the kids in the toy store here. Uh, it really is an amazing toy store because there's newer and better always around the corner. So, um, as I say, if I was practicing in the 1940s or 1950s, I don't think I'd be as happy as I am now because these things are just, as I say, every time I hear of one of these, I evaluate them. I, I bring them in. I look at them. I really scientifically look to see if they're better because, you know, not everything is all that it's shaked up to be. Not all of it is reality. Part of it is, is marketing and I really find that there are things that a person has to be very careful of at this point in time. Mm -hmm. The other procedure that fascinated me was thermage. Thermage is another wonderful technique that has really, really evolved. Again, I got involved in it about 2003, 2004, and what this uses is ultrasound waves underneath the skin literally to tighten the skin. Now, when it first came out, it used to be a very painful procedure. As it's evolved, the technique has changed. It add, it's added vibration to the technique, and it literally tightens without downtime. That was a, a, a very interesting machine, and, and we still use a lot of it with some very, very good results. We find that helps to shrink down loose skin on the abdomen. We find it shrinks down loose skin on the face. It's not as good as a facelift, but then again, not everybody wants to go through a facelift or a tummy tuck to get the results of the things. So that was one breakthrough, and as I speak, there's another machine that has come out just in the last year, and I, I'm going to be evaluating it in the, new, in the near future called All Therapy. All Therapy actually does this tightening even more so than Thermage does. It does it at a greater level than Thermage because it literally looks underneath the skin and tightens the, the skin at the level of something called the superficial a musculoaporosis system, or the SMAS, and it literally tightens the skin. One of my friends who's been using all therapy in the States, Dr. Novak from Chula Vista, California, he's done about 80 cases, and he's been absolutely thrilled with it. So, as I say, newer techniques are around the corner, better things, and I'm very glad I can talk to the listeners about them today. One other question. When the skin has a lack of pigment, either from sun damage or from surgery, is there any way of getting the pigment back? It all depends how badly it's damaged. Now, I've had some people I've been able to help and others I've not. First, we've got to put the collagen back in. We have to put the thickness back in. But we also have to try and rehydrate the skin because it's lost its moisture. So some of the things we can do with simple creams and make them better but sometimes we have to take them further than that. Unfortunately, if a person's lost a great deal of weight because of cancer or other sicknesses, there isn't a lot we can do in those situations because their their body is degraded to such a point that we really can't put that back in. We've been talking with Dr. Barry Lyka. Uh, his website is Barry Lyka, that's B-A-R-R-Y-L-Y-C-K-A-M-D.com, BarryLykaMD.com. The book that's coming out in August 2011 is Skin Works, and your practice is in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. 
And it sounds like one of the ways we can keep up on all these new procedures uh, you're talking about is to check in your website periodically, because I bet you'll be talking about them. And I'd like to offer everybody on the site to actually check out a new service that I'm also starting called YourCosmeticDoctor.tv. This is a website called YourCosmeticDoctor.tv. And every week I'm going to be putting up new features, new videos for people so that they can actually just dial in and in three to five minutes find out some of the newest, neatest procedures that are coming out. I'll uh, bookmark that. Sounds wonderful, Michael, and I'd look forward to talking to you again as newer and better things come along. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Commentary. As Dr. Laika said, it's an exciting time to be a cosmetic surgeon. Each year brings innovations that are less invasive, safer, and even a little less expensive. Most of the innovations involve using lasers, heat, or even cold. That's the good news. The bad news is that most cosmetic procedures only last anywhere from three to six months for Botox to a couple years for most procedures, and perhaps seven years for a traditional facelift. Interestingly, people who seek cosmetic treatments are usually pleased with their appearance and merely seek to tweak certain aspects of how they look. Dr. Laika talked about how today many cosmetic surgeons employ a combination of methods. Thus, he advises that when consulting with a cosmetic surgeon, start with knowing the results that you want and be open to a variety of ways to achieve those results. Choosing a cosmetic surgeon requires some homework. One of the most important criteria is how often has he or she performed the procedure you are considering. I'll post the websites he recommended on my blog, agelesslifestyles.com. I'll also list the new procedures he mentioned so you can Google them to learn more about them and follow them as they develop. You are listening to Ageless Lifestyles on webtalkradio.net and permanently archived on agelesslifestyles.com. For information on my books, Defy Aging and 52 Baby Steps to Grow Young, my anti-aging hypnosis CDs, personal coaching, or my keynote and seminar services, just go to notaging.com or drbricky.com, D-R-B-R-I-C-K-E-Y.com. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. Send them to radio at agelesslifestyles.com. This is your anti-aging psychologist, Dr. Michael Bricky, thanking you for joining us on our quest to live longer, healthier, and happier.